Chapter Six of the White Mall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The White Mall, by Frank L. Packard. Chapter Six, The Rendezvous. Rhoda Gray's movements were a little unsteady as she stepped out on the sidewalk. Gypsy Nan's accepted inebriety was not without its compensation. It enabled her, as she swayed for a moment, to scrutinize the street in all directions. Were any of Rough Rourke's men watching the house? She did not know. She only knew that as far as she was able to discover, she had not been followed when she had gone out that afternoon. Up the street, to her right, there were a few pedestrians. To her left, as far as the corner, the block was clear. She turned in the latter direction. She had noticed that afternoon that there was a lane between Gypsy Nan's house and the corner. She gained this and slipped into it unobserved. And now, in the comparative darkness, she hurried her steps. Somewhere here in the lane she would make the transformation from Gypsy Nan to the White Mall complete. It only required some place in which she could, with safety, leave the garments that she discarded. And yes, this would do. A tumble-down old shed, its battered door half open, ample proof that the place was in disuse, intersected the line of a high board fence on her right. She stole inside. It was utter darkness, but she had no need for light. It was a matter of perhaps three minutes, and then, the revolver transferred to the pocket of her jacket, the stains removed from her face with the aid of a damp cloth, her hands neatly gloved in black kid, the skirt, boots, stocking, shawl, spectacles, and wig of Gypsy Nan carefully piled together and hidden in a hole under the rotting boards of the floor behind the door. She emerged as the white mall and went on again. But at the end of the lane, where it met a cross street, and the street lamp flung out an ominous challenge, and, dim though it was, seemed to glare with the brightness of daylight, she faltered for a moment and drew back. She knew where Schlucker's place was, because she knew, as few knew it, every nook and cranny in the east side, and it was a long way to that old junk shop, almost over to the East River, and, and there would be lights like this one that barred her exit from the lane, thousands of them, lights all the way, and, and out there they were searching everywhere, piteously, for the white mall. And then, with her lips tightened, the straight little shoulders thrown back resolutely, she slipped from the lane to the sidewalk, and hugging the shadows of the buildings, started forward. She was alert now, in mind and body, every faculty strained and in tension. It was a long way, and it would take a great while, by wide detours, by lanes and alleyways, for only on those streets that were relatively deserted and poorly lighted would she dare trust herself to the open. And as she went along, now skirting the side of the street, now through the black courtyard, now forced to take a fence, and taking it with the agility born of the open, athletic life that she had led with her father in the mining camps of South America, now hiding in the mouth of a lane, waiting her chance to cross an intersecting street when some receding footstep should have died away, the terror of delay came gripping at her heart with an icy clutch, submerging the fear of personal peril in an agony of dread that with her progress so slow she would, after all, be too late. 
At times she almost cried out in her vexation and despair, as once when crouched behind a door-stoop a policeman, not two yards from her, stood and twirled his nightstick under a street-lamp, while the minutes sped and raced themselves away. When she could run, she ran until it seemed her lungs must burst, but it was slow progress at best, and always the terror grew upon her. Had Dangler met the men yet who had looted the millionaire's safe? Had he already joined Skeeny in that old room behind Schlucker's place? Had the sparrow? She could not let her mind frame that question in concrete words. The sparrow. His real name was Martin, Martin Finch, Marty for short. Times without number she had visited his sick and widowed mother, while the sparrow had served a two-year sentence for his first conviction in safe-breaking. The sparrow from a first-class chauffeur mechanic, had showed signs of becoming a first-class cracksman. It was true, but the sparrow was young, and she had never believed that he was inherently bad. Her opinion had been confirmed when six months ago, on his release, listening both to her own pleadings and those of his mother, the sparrow had sworn that he would stick to the straight and narrow. And Hayden Bond, the millionaire, referred to by a good many people as eccentric, had further proved his claims to eccentricity in the eyes of a good many people by giving a prison bird a chance to make an honest living, and had engaged the sparrow as his chauffeur. It was a vile and abominable thing that they were doing, even if they had not planned to culminate it with murder. What chance would the sparrow have had? It had taken a long time. She did not know how long, as at last she stole unnoticed into the black and narrow driveway that led in between two blocks of down-at-the-heels tenements to a courtyard in the rear. Schlucker had his junk shop here. Her lips pursed up as though defiant of a tinge of perplexity that had suddenly taken possession of her. She did not know Schlucker or anything about Schlucker's place except its locality, but surely the old room behind Schlucker's was direction enough, and— she had just emerged from the end of the driveway now, and now, startled, she turned her head quickly, as she heard a brisk step turning from the street behind her. But in the darkness she could see no one, and satisfied, therefore, that she in turn had not been seen, she moved swiftly to one side, and crouched down against the rear wall of one of the tenements. A long moment that seemed an eternity passed, and then a man's form came out from the driveway, and started across the courtyard. She drew in her breath sharply, a curious mingling of relief, and a sudden panic fear upon her. It was not so dark in the courtyard as it had been in the driveway, and unless she were strangely mistaken, that form out there was Dangler's. She watched him as he headed back toward a small building that loomed up like a black, irregular shadow across the courtyard, and which was Schlucker's shop. Watched him in a tense, fascinated way. She was in time, then, only— only somehow her limbs seemed to have become weak and powerless. It seemed suddenly as though she craved with all her soul the protecting shadows of the tenement, and that every impulse bade her to cling there, flattened against the wall, until she could make her escape. She was afraid now. She shrank from the next step. It wasn't illogical. She had set out with a purpose in view, and she had not been blind to the danger that she ran, but the perspective— and mental encounter with danger did not hold the terror that the tangible, concrete, and actual presence of that peril did, and that was Dangler there. She felt her face whiten, and she felt the tremor of her lips, tightly as they were drawn together. 
Yes, she was afraid, afraid in every fiber of her being. But there was a difference, wasn't there, between being afraid and being a coward? Her small, gloved hands clenched, her lips parted slightly. She laughed a little now, low, without mirth. Upon what she did or did not do, upon the margin between fear and cowardice applied to herself, there hung a man's life. Dangler was disappearing around the side of Schlucker's shop. She moved out from the wall, and swiftly, silently crossed the courtyard, gained the side of the junk shop in turn, skirted it and halted, listening, peering around her, as she reached the rear corner of the building. A door closed somewhere ahead of her, from above, upstairs, faint streaks of light showed through the interstices of a shuttered window. She crept forward now, hugging the rear wall, reached a door, the one obviously through which Dangler had disappeared, and which she had heard as it was closed, tried the door, found it unlocked, and, noiselessly, inch by inch, pushed it open, and a moment later, stepping over the threshold, she closed it softly behind her. A dull glow of light, emanating evidently from a door above, disclosed the upper portion of a stairway over on her left, but apart from that the place was in blackness, and save that she knew, of course, she was in the rear of Schlucker's junk shop, she could form no idea of her surroundings. But she could at last hear. Voices, one of which she recognized as Dangler's, though she could not distinguish the words, reached her from upstairs. Slowly, with infinite care, she crossed the stairs, and on hands and knees now, lest she make a sound, began to crawl upward. And a little way up, panic fear seized upon her again, and her heart stood still, and she turned a miserable face in the darkness back toward the door below, and fought against the impulse to retreat again. And then she heard Dangler speak, and from her new vantage point his words came to her distinctly this time. "'Good work, Skeeny. You've got the sparrow nicely trussed up, I see. Well, He'll do as he is for a while there. I told the boys to hold off a bit. It's safer to wait an hour or two yet, before moving him away from here and bumping him off. Two jobs instead of one, a surly voice answered. We might just as well have finished him and slipped him away for keeps when we first got our hooks on him. Got a little sick of your wood carving while you were stuck around by your lonesome and watched him, hey? Dangler's tones were jocular, facetious. Don't grouch, Skinny. We're not killing for fun. It doesn't pay. Supposing anything had broken wrong up the avenue, eh? We wouldn't have had our friend the sparrow there for the next time we tried it. There was something abhorrently callous about the laugh that followed. It seemed to fan into flames a smoldering fire of passionate anger in Rhoda Gray's soul. And before it panic fled. Her hand felt upward for the next stair-tread, and she crept on again, as a face seemed to rise before her. Not the sparrow's face, a woman's face. It was a face that was crowned with very thin white hair, and its eyes were the saddest she had ever seen, and yet they were the brave, steady eyes that had not lost their faith, nor had the old, care-lined face itself, in spite of suffering, lost its gentleness and sweetness. And then suddenly it seemed to change, that face, and become wreathed in smiles, and happy tears to run coursing down the wrinkled cheeks. Yes, she remembered. It had brought the tears to her own eyes. It was the night that the wayward sparrow, home from the penitentiary, on his knees, 
his head buried in his mother's lap, had sworn that he would go straight. Fear. It seemed as though she never had known, never could know fear, that only a merciless, tigerish, unbridled fury had in her its thrall. And she went on up, step after step, as Dangler spoke again. There's nothing to it. The sparrow there fell for the telephone when Stevie played the doctor. An old Hayden Bond, of course, grants his prison bird chauffeur's request to spend the night with his mother, who the doctor says has taken worse, because the old guy knows that there is a mother who really is sick. Only Mr. Hayden Bond, and the police with him, will maybe figure it a little differently in the morning when they find the safe looted, and that the sparrow, instead of going near the poor old dame, has flown the coop and can't be found. And in case there's any lingering doubt in their minds, that piece of paper with the green smudges, and the sparrow's greasy fingerprints on it, that you remember we copped a few days ago in the garage, will set them straight. The cricket slipped it in among the papers he pulled out of the safe, and tossed around the floor. It looks as though the tool had been wiped with it while the safe was being cracked, and that it got covered over by the stuff that was emptied out, and had been forgotten. I guess they won't be long in comparing the fingerprints with the ones the sparrow kindly left with them, when they measured him for his striped suit the time they sent him up the river, eh? Rhoda Gray could see now. Her eyes were level with the landing, and diagonally across from the head of the stairs was the open doorway of the lighted room. She could not see all of the interior, but she could see quite enough. Two men sat, side-faced to her, one at each end of a rough deal table, Dangler and an ugly pockmark, unshaven man, in a peaked cap that was drawn down over his eyes, who whittled at a stick with a huge jackknife. The latter was skeeny, obviously, and the jackknife and the stick quite as obviously explained Dangler's facetious reference to wood-carving and then her eyes shifted and widened as they rested on the huddled form that she could see, looking under and beyond the table, and that lay sprawled out against the far wall of the room. Skinny pushed the peak of his cap back with the point of his knife-blade. "'What's the hall size up at?' he demanded. "'Anything in the safe besides the shiners?' "'A few hundred dollars,' Dangler replied. "'I don't know exactly how much. "'I told the cricket to divide it up among the boys who did the rough work.' That's good enough, isn't it, Skeeny? It gives you a little extra. You'll get yours. Skeeny grunted compliance. Well, let's have a look at the white ones, then, he said. Rhoda Gray was standing upright in the little hallway now, and now pressed close against the wall. She edged toward the door jamb, and a queer, grim little smile came and twisted the sensitive lips as she drew her revolver from her pocket. The merciless, pitiless way in which the newspapers had flayed the white mall was not, after all, to be wholly regretted. The cool, clever resourcefulness, the years of reckless daring attributed to the white mall, would stand her in good stead now. Everybody on the east side knew her by sight. These men knew her. It was not merely a woman ambitiously attempting to beard two men who, perhaps, holding her sex in contempt, in an adventure of this kind, might throw discretion to the winds, and give scant respect to her revolver, for behind the muzzle of that revolver was the reputation of the white mall. They would take her at face value, as one who would not only know how to use that revolver, but as one who would not hesitate an instant to do so. From the room she heard Skeeny whistle low under his breath, as though in sudden and amazed delight, and then she was standing full in the open doorway, 
and her revolver in her outflung, gloved hand covered the two men at the table. There was a startled cry from Skeeny, a scintillating flash of light as a magnified string of diamonds fell from his hand to the table. But Dangler did not move or speak, only his lips twitched. A queer whiteness came and spread itself over his face. "'Put up your hands, both of you,' she ordered in a low, tense voice. It was Skeeny who spoke, as both men obeyed her. "'The white mall, so help me,' he mumbled and swallowed hard. Dangler's eyes never seemed to leave her face, and they narrowed now, full of hatred and a fury that Lie made no attempt to conceal. She smiled at him coldly. She quite understood. He had already complained that evening that the white mall for the last few weeks had been robbing them of the fruits of their laboriously planned schemes. And now again. Well, she would not dispel his illusion. He had given the white mall that role, and it was the safest role to play. She stepped forward now, and with her free hand suddenly pulled the table toward her out of their reach, and then, as she picked up the necklace, she appeared for the first time to become aware of the presence of the huddled form on the floor near the wall. She could see that the sparrow was bound and gagged, and as he squirmed now he turned his face toward her. "'Why, it's the sparrow, isn't it?' she exclaimed sharply, then evenly to the two men. "'I had no idea you were so hospitable. Push your chairs closer together. With your feet, not your hands. You are easier to watch if you're not so far apart.' Dangler complied sullenly. Skeeny, over the scraping of his chair-legs, cursed in a sort of unnerved abandon as he obeyed her. "'Thank you,' said Rhoda Gray pleasantly, and calmly tucked the necklace into her bodice. The act seemed to arouse Dangler to the last pitch of fury. The blood rushed to an angry tide in his face, and suffusing purpled his cheeks. "'This isn't the first crack you've made,' he flung out hoarsely. You've been getting wise to a whole lot lately somehow, you and that dude pal of yours, but you'll pay for it, you female devil. Understand? By God, you'll pay for it. I promise you that you'll pray yet on your bended knees for the chance to take your own life. Do you hear? I hear, said Rhoda Gray coldly. She picked up the jackknife from the table, and keeping both men covered, stepped backward to the wall. Here, kneeling, she reached behind her with her left hand and felt for and cut the heavy cord that bound the sparrow's arms, then pushing the knife into the sparrow's hands, that he might free himself from the rest of his bonds, she stood up again. A moment more and the sparrow, rubbing the circulation back into his wrists, stood beside her. There was a look on the young white face that was not good to see. He circled dry lips with the tip of his tongue, and then his thumb began to feel over the blade of the big jackknife in a sort of horribly, supercritical appraisal of its edge. He spoke thickly for the gag that had been in his mouth. "'You dirty skates,' he whispered. "'You were going to bump me off, were you? You planted me cold, did you? Oh, hell!' His laugh, like the laugh of one insane, jangled, discordant, rang through the room. "'Well, it's my turn now, and—' His body was coiling itself in a slow, curious, almost snake-like fashion. "'And you'll—' Rhoda Gray laid her hand on the sparrow's arm. "'Not that way, Marty,' she said quietly. She smiled thinly at Dangler, who, with genuinely frightened eyes now, seemed fascinated by the sparrow's movements. 
I wouldn't care to have anything happen to Mr. Dangler, yet. He has been invaluable to me, and I am sure he will be again. The sparrow brushed his hands across his eyes and stared at her. He licked his lips again. He appeared to be obsessed with the knife-blade in his hand, dazed in a strange way to all else. "'There's enough cord there for both of them,' said Rhoda Gray crisply. "'Tie them to their chairs, Marty.' For a moment the sparrow hesitated, and then, with a sort of queer reluctancy, he dropped the knife on the table and went and picked up the strands of cord from the floor. No one spoke. The sparrow, with twitching lips as he worked, and worked not gently, first bound Dangler and then Skeeny to their respective chairs. Skeeny, for the most part, kept his eyes on the floor, casting only furtive glances at Rhoda Gray's revolver muzzle. But Dangler was smiling now. He had very white teeth. There was something of primal, insensate fury in the hard-drawn, parted lips. Somehow he seemed to remind Rhoda Gray of a beast, stung to madness, but impotent behind the bars of its cage, as it showed its fangs. "'We'll go now, Marty,' she said softly, as the sparrow finished. She motioned the sparrow with an imperious little nod of her head to the door, and then, following the other, she backed to the door herself and halted an instant on the threshold. "'It has been a very profitable evening, Mr. Dangler,' she said, coolly. "'I have to thank you for it. When your friends come, which I think I heard you say would be another hour or so, I hope you will not fail to convey to them my—' "'You she-fiend!' Dangler had found his voice again. "'You'll crawl for this.' and I'll show you, inside of twenty-four hours, what you're up against, you—you—' His voice broke in its fury. The veins were standing out on the sides of his neck like whipcords. He could just move his forearms a little, and his hands reached out toward her, curved like claws. "'I'll—' But Rhoda Gray had closed the door behind her, and, with the sparrow, was retreating down the stairs. End of Chapter 6